Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses uh, 4 through 6 this morning at Christ as our living stone. And all the significance, or at least some of the significance that that implies for us as His church. So 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 4 from the inspired living Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, Peter has already told his readers that they are chosen aliens, pilgrims in this life on their way to their heavenly inheritance. They are kept by God through faith, even though now they are distressed by various trials. But they have joy in the midst of their trials because they have the hope of the glory to come. Therefore, as pilgrims, Peter tells them what their attitude should be as aliens in this life on this earth. They are to, number one, fix their hope on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, they are to live obediently. They are to pursue holiness of life. To live in gospel fear of the Lord and to love one another. And as they love one another, they are to put off the sins uh, that destroy love and seek to grow in their salvation by longing for the Word of God. Having said that, Peter now begins to lay out for them an incredible picture of what they have become in Jesus Christ. And this is to motivate them to continue to pursue a life of faith, hope, and love. In essence, what Peter is describing them, <clears throat> that they have become a transformed image of Jesus Christ. That because of our relationship with Christ, His glory and who He is has made an imprint, an impression upon His church so that they reflect Him in various ways. So let's begin to break this down. Let's look at verse 4 as Peter begins to describe first off the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in verse 4, and coming to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So he's going to describe Christ in verse 4 
and then how that has changed us and transformed us in verse 5 and following. So let's look at how Christ is described in verse 4. Notice, we have come to Him, that is, to the Lord, who is referenced uh, up in the previous passage in verse 24, verse 25. You have come to Him, that's Jesus Christ, as to a living stone. Now that's kind of a paradoxical description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a stone, but He's a living stone. And normally when you think of a stone, you think of something that's dead. Uh, Ezekiel even described the unregenerate heart of man as a heart of stone, meaning they are cold stone dead. That heart of stone does not respond. So, But Christ is referred to as a stone, but not a dead stone without life, but as a living stone. And the living description is probably a reference to the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Christ said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Could also refer to the fact that he possesses within his divine nature eternal, imperishable life. He is the living stone. Now, why is he called a stone? Well, Peter is going to refer to three Old Testament passages in the following context to give an explanation of that in verses 6 through 8. But we'll set that aside just for a moment and come back to that. Notice again in verse 4, as a living stone, he has been rejected by men. So now Peter will give a contrast between how the world viewed Christ. He was rejected by men in contrast to how God the Father views Christ. His choice and precious in the sight of God. So the way men viewed Jesus Christ as a living stone He's rejected. He's rejected by men. This is man's sinful point of view. Now, from verse 4, if you drop down and look at verse 7, Paul is uh, quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, which says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this is why he's referring to in verse 4. So it actually gives the Old Testament biblical proof text in verse 7 when he quotes from Psalm 118. But this is what he's referencing back up in verse 4. That the living stone has been rejected by men. Now, in verse 7, the ones who reject the stone are called the builders. And these builders would refer to the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. They have rejected Jesus Christ when they crucified Him. But now in verse 4, Peter actually enlarges the net of those who reject Christ to, to men in general. He is rejected by men. That is man's natural bent is to reject Jesus Christ to reject the gospel. So the picture is that these builders, referencing the quotation in verse 7, 
these builders, these Jewish leaders, were looking for just the right stone to make as a cornerstone for their edifice, their building. And they looked at Jesus Christ, but He didn't measure up. So they discarded Him. Because they were looking for someone who endorsed them and Christ condemned them. They were looking for someone who would establish an earthly kingdom and overthrow the Romans and exalt Israel over all the nations. But Christ brought a kingdom that is not of this world. So he was rejected by those builders. But in verse 4, again, it's a broader rejection. It's rejected by men in general. This rejection, again, is because of man's sinful heart. Paul tells us in Romans 3, there are none who seeks after God. Without the Spirit of God doing that heart change, there are none who seek after God because of their own depravity, their own sinfulness. That's why Jesus said in John 6 that no one, a universal categorical statement, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Because they don't want to come. They just naturally reject Christ. It's interesting that Christ... Looking at verse 7, again, the Old Testament proof text for this idea of rejection. Christ quoted this same psalm mentioned in verse 7 here in Matthew 21 when He told His parable about the landowner. Remember, the landowner planted a vineyard, rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey. And it was harvest time. He sent out His servants to gather some of the produce But the vine growers beat one servant, killed another, stoned a third, and then finally said, okay, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. Well, he sent his son. What did they do to the son? They killed him. They crucified him. And Jesus then quotes exactly the same verse in verse 7 that Peter quotes. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And he made a reference to the Jewish leaders of his day fulfilling this text of Scripture as a prophecy, as it were, as to why they rejected him. They rejected Christ. They crucified him. And notice at, in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 7, how that verse ends. The rejected stone became the very cornerstone. And that speaks probably to the resurrection of Christ establishing His own kingdom, His own nation. Rejected by the builders. Rejected by men in general. And yet Christ made Him to be the very cornerstone. Peter picked up on that when he heard Jesus give that parable in Matthew 21. And in Acts chapter 4, when Peter was arrested and thrown in jail, and the next morning he was brought before those same men that crucified Christ. The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the the scribes. And he accused them of crucifying the Lord Jesus, but God raising from the dead. And Peter there quoted from Psalm 118 verse 22, which he quotes again here in chapter 2 verse 7. So it's a very famous verse to refer to the natural bent of man to always be rejecting Christ's stone. The stone of Christ. The stone which the builders rejected. 
Now, if you look back up in verse 4, that's man's opinion of Christ. They reject Him. But in God's opinion, in verse 4, He's choice and precious in the sight of God. So though He's rejected by men, He's not rejected by the Father, obviously. Now notice two descriptive words here. He's choice or chosen. Some translations will have chosen. So that either word communicates a good idea. If he's, if he's the choice stone in the sight of the Father, that means He's choice in the sense that He, he is the spotless Lamb of God. He alone can take our place and save us from our sins. No one else in all the universe can save us, but this stone can. He is choice in the sight of God. He is special. Or if you translate it as chosen, the chosen stone, we may have in mind, Peter may have in mind, the eternal covenant of redemption, where the Father and the Son and the Spirit come together before the foundation of the world and they form a covenant of redemption. Where the Father elects some to save, the the Son comes down and, and volunteers to redeem them and the Spirit changes their heart and brings them to faith. And in this context, the Son is chosen by the Father to accomplish something that no one else possibly could. Even in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, referring the Father, speaking about the Son, saying, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. So Christ is the living stone, but He's choice or He's chosen. Either translation is good. And He's also precious in verse 4. He is precious. He's, he's honorable. He's, he's valuable. He's precious to the Father. He's precious because He's the only begotten Son. There are no others. He's the only one. He's precious because He's the wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He's precious because in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's precious because He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of His nature upholding all things by the word of His power. He's precious. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And worthy is the Lamb to receive power and glory and honor. For the Son's willingness to sacrifice Himself for us, the Father views Him as precious. He is precious to the Father. And beloved here today, He should be precious to us as well. He's not only choice, but He's precious. That's how God views His Son. He's a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. And because of that, there has been a great transformation within the people of Christ. The followers of Christ. In verse 5, now Peter says, describing the character of the church as a result of who Christ is, 
He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now we become living stones. Christ is the living stone, but He becomes the pattern now for you and me. We become living stones. If we are in Christ by faith, we partake of His life, we partake of His grace, so that we derive our life from Christ. So He is a living stone, now has imprinted that upon us, so we become living stones. We share in His resurrected life that's been imparted to us, so that now you are a living stone. Well, what kind of stone are we? What kind of stone was Christ? Well, I think Peter gives us a strong understanding of that in the next phrase. That we're being built up into a spiritual house. So we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. What is that house? Well, the word house can refer to household, the members of a family. And that would be true of us. But probably by house, what he primarily has in mind is the temple. Because oftentimes in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the temple is referred to as the house of God, the dwelling place of God. I think that's the right understanding because he goes on and references that we're a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. That's in the context of the temple. That's where that occurs. So we are living stones and we're being built up into a spiritual house that is a spiritual temple of God. So that what Peter is saying is that basically Christ as a living stone, He's a living stone because He's the cornerstone of the temple, and we are living stones because we make up the temple as well. It's a spiritual house because it's not a physical building like the Old Testament temple. But it's a work of the Spirit of God, so it's a spiritual house where every living stone is indwelt and animated by the Holy Spirit. So we are a spiritual house. We're we're living stones, but we're in a spiritual house. So the church is described as a temple here. Now, there are many places in the New Testament where this is echoed. For example, Paul describes the church as a temple in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know know that you're a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Because when you think of a temple, what is a temple? When the Old, Old Testament, that's where God dwelt. That's where His presence was manifested. And we are now that temple where God dwells. He he dwells in the church corporately and He indwells every individual believer because our body is also a temple, as we'll see. 1 Corinthians 9.16 Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? You are a holy temple. Not only your body, but also we as the spiritual body of Christ now become the new covenant temple 
of God. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2. So then you're of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They're the foundation of the temple. Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So Paul in several places agrees with Peter that the church has now become a holy temple. We're a spiritual house, a holy temple, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone of the foundation of this temple. Now the old temple in the old covenant was a physical stone, made of physical stones. But see, it merely pointed forward to Jesus Christ and the new covenant temple that He would bring. A spiritual temple. That new temple first began to be identified with Jesus Christ Himself and His own physical body. We see this, remember, in John chapter 1. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is actually the word for tabernacle. It's a, it's a word used to reflect back on the Old Testament tabernacle. So the Word became flesh and He tabernacled among us. He was God in human flesh. God who, who dwelt in the tent of His humanity and He dwelt among us. So Jesus Christ Himself now is the new covenant temple referring to the very presence of God in the building of His body, if you will. But He brings in the new covenant temple. That's why in John chapter 2, remember Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. Of course, they're thinking of of, uh, the temple, Herod's temple, that was there standing in the temple compound. took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But what was He speaking about? The temple of His body. Because now the very physical nature, the very physical body of Jesus Christ becomes the new covenant temple. God indwelt Him. Jesus Christ had two natures. He was fully God and fully man. So now, the Old Testament building of the temple pointed forward to the full glory of God's temple and the very incarnation of Jesus Christ. So Christ now becomes that temple. But now, He's resurrected. He's ascended to the Father. And so now, His physical body, that temple, is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. But now He imparts to His people His spiritual body on earth to become His new covenant temple on earth. So that now the church, we are His spiritual body and Christ through His Spirit indwells us so that we now corporately become the temple of the new covenant. And also individually, our body individually becomes a temple because the Spirit of God indwells within us. That's why your body belongs to the Lord because it's God's temple 
And we're to honor God. And like Peter, like Paul says in another place, that uh, you're not your own because you've been purchased by Christ. So we are now the new covenant temple. We are the spiritual body. His body is now in heaven. But when He left, we become His spiritual body. So we are now where God dwells on this earth because we are united with Christ so that we become that spiritual temple because we become His spiritual body here on earth. If you drop down to verse 6 again, you see that uh, Peter quotes in verse 6 from Isaiah 28.16. says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and who believes in Him will not be disappointed. So now we know that the stone in verse 4, the living stone that Peter has in mind, is that Christ is the cornerstone of His temple. He's the very foundation. And all of the life of the temple flows from the cornerstone. Kind of an unusual imagery. Think of this precious choice cornerstone, which is a living stone. And all of the believers who are united with Christ and connected with Christ by the Spirit form now this new covenant temple. And it's from His life that permeates and spreads and sustains us all as living stones. So that's what we become because of who Christ is. So we get our identity ultimately from Him. So the old physical temple of Israel is rendered void. When Christ came, what the temple represented was fulfilled in Christ. So I personally don't look forward to any rebuilding of any physical temple over in Israel. If it's rebuilt and if they offer sacrifices like they did in the Old Covenant, then it would be an abomination. Because it would deny the fundamental truth taught in the book of Hebrews that Christ came and offered His blood once for all time. He was the fulfillment of all the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant. So that now the New Covenant has come. We're not going to go back to the Old Covenant again. That temple is void. It fulfilled its purpose. It was part of the shadows of the Old Testament law along with the Levitical priesthood and the animal sacrifices and all that has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that Jewish temple, I think, is part of past history. But notice again in verse 5, we are being built up as a spiritual house. We're being built up as passive voice, referring that God is the one who is building us up as a spiritual house. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is the one building His temple. How is He building it? By adding new believers into the church. The temple is growing. It's being built up in number. It's also being built up in spiritual maturity as the Spirit of God sanctifies us and helps us to draw closer to Him and to live our life more for Him than for ourselves. So we're a spiritual temple. Look at verse 5, the next phrase. We're also a holy priesthood. 
And it's interesting that now Peter changes the analogy. Not only are we the temple, but we're also a priesthood. You know, it's interesting. The, the New Testament describes the, uh, the church in many different ways. We're the body, we're the bride, we're the sheep, we're the temple, we're also priests. And though Peter does not refer to it, we draw our priesthood from Jesus Christ who is our high priest. Christ is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priesthood is a part of the shadows. It's in the past. It's fulfilled its purpose. It's gone. But our priesthood is, is according to our relationship with Jesus Christ. He being the high priest, now we become a holy priesthood as well. Later on in verse 9, Peter will again refer to the church as a royal priesthood. And we'll look at that more later. Here we're described as a holy priesthood. So that you as an individual and we as a church have been set apart from the world for God's service. We are a holy priesthood. We've been consecrated. We've been anointed by the Spirit of God. We are dressed in the robes of Christ's righteousness so that now we are a holy priesthood in Jesus Christ. And all believers are priests. And this is a vast improvement over the Old Covenant. Because in the Old Testament, only the descendants of Aaron were priests and the Levites were their helpers. And they alone had access into the immediate presence of God. In fact, the high priest only on one day out of the year could actually enter into the Holy of Holies and have the closest access to God. One day out of the year for one man in that whole whole, uh, nation. And now you can see the privileges that we have because Jesus Christ is our high priest. He has made us into priests. You're a priest. You are a priest in Jesus Christ. That means we have direct access to God through the cross, through the resurrection of Christ. And again, we've all been anointed by the Holy Spirit. We have the right and the privilege as priests to enter into the presence of God whenever we want. And this is why the Roman Catholic Church erred so badly when they try to imitate the Old Covenant by set aside a group of men to be priests and everybody else is a layman. That's the Old Covenant. That's not the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, every believer is a priest. Every believer has direct access to God through Jesus Christ. It's an incredible blessing that we have become. No believer today needs any human mediator other than Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through anybody. You have direct access to God the Father through Christ. Because we are now a holy priesthood. And as priests, what are we supposed to do? Verse 5. Offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Sacrifices are offered by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit. By virtue for the glory of Christ, that's what we aim them for. 
But we may ask, well, what are those spiritual sacrifices that you and I as holy priests should be offering up to God? Well, we have some suggestions, some guidance from Scripture. We're told, for example, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, that through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is a fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. So part of the sacrifice you should make as a priest to God regularly is a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. That's part of our spiritual sacrifices that we make to the Lord. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 speaks of the prayers of the saints like golden bowls full of incense. Again, you see the temple mentality reflected here. Because we're a temple, we're also a priesthood, but our prayer is like incense being offered up to God. Now, we don't literally go burn physical incense. That's not what he's talking about. It's our prayers. It's a spiritual offering, a spiritual sacrifice. So as priests, we should be praising God and thanking God. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So that's part of our spiritual sacrifice. Also, we should be engaged in ministry. This is another way that holy priests offer up sacrifices to God. Again, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We don't bring animal sacrifices anymore. No, we offer a sacrifice to God as we bless other people, as we do good to people, as we share from our means to those in need around us. Those are the sacrifices that we offer now. It's interesting, when Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he had been working as a tent maker, supporting himself in the ministry, until Epaphroditus came from Philippi with a substantial financial gift to give to the Apostle Paul. And Paul references that when he says that he's received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So as priests, part of our sacrifice is when we give of our tithes and our offerings or we send money to missionaries or a good cause that promotes godly values, the gospel to missionaries. All of that is part of our spiritual sacrifice that we make as a holy priesthood today. And even with the Apostle Paul, he mentioned in Romans 15 that even his evangelism Even the souls that he won by the grace of God was an offering of the Gentiles to God. So that all those who came to faith by the Spirit of God through his ministry of preaching, he offered those Gentiles to God as an offering to the Lord. So we offer spiritual sacrifices to God as we live out our life, as we bless others, as we do good, as we share, as we seek to build up the body of Christ through sharing the Gospel with others. Those are part of the sacrifices that we make as a holy priesthood. 
And then Paul mentions another one where he speaks of our consecration to the Lord. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So now Paul just says you present your body. It's not just our physical body. It's our body, our soul, our spirit. We present all that we are to God as a living and holy sacrifice. That's our spiritual service. That's our spiritual sacrifice of worship. So Paul actually just kind of sums it all up by saying everything we are, everything we have, we offer to God as a living and holy sacrifice to Him. Why? Because we're both priests and we actually become the sacrifice as well. You can see the priesthood, the whole worship of temple worship is now reflected in the church as we, as a holy priest, offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Offering to God our bodies certainly suggests that we live consecrated lives separate from the world. doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world. Rather, we have contact without contamination. Contact without conformity. We offer to God our body, our soul, because He has made us and He has redeemed us so that we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. So part of our holy priesthood is we actually just consecrate all that we are to the Lord because of what He has done for us. And all of these sacrifices are to be done through Jesus Christ. They're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So whether we praise God or we're engaged in ministry or whether we're consecrating ourselves, we do it all ultimately not for self-praise or self-glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. So in essence, we are who we are because of our union with Christ. And because of who Christ is, that has passed on its imprint upon us. So in summary again, Christ is the living stone and He has made us into living stones. And the stone that He is, He's the cornerstone of the new temple that He built, that He basically secured and purchased by His blood. And because He's the cornerstone, He is building us as living stones into a spiritual temple. Christ is our high priest. And because of that, we have inherited a holy priesthood. And as Christ is a sacrificial lamb, so we become His church that offers spiritual sacrifices to God. Not for atonement, not for salvation. His was, not ours. Ours is in worship. Ours is in devotion. Ours is in love and adoration. We offer spiritual sacrifices to Him. Later on in verse 9, Peter's going to add to this list by calling the church a chosen race and a holy nation. When you look at all that, how would you sum up the church, the new covenant church? What have we become? Well, we've become the new covenant spiritual Israel of God. 
We're now that temple. We're now that priesthood. We're now those living sacrifices. We have become the new Israel of God. Israel in the Old Testament, again, is part of the shadow, I think, with its temple and its animal sacrifices and its priesthood all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Christ came to establish a holy nation. The church is now the holy nation. And that's who we are because of Christ and bringing in all the blessings of the new covenant. We get our identity from Christ. He is our King. He is our Lord. And through His blood on the cross, Christ gave birth to a new covenant, spiritual and holy people of God for His possession. A people who are now the true sons of Abraham by faith in Him. Those who now have become the fulfillment of all that Israel failed to do in the Old Covenant. Christ is now fulfilling it through His church, which is on earth. So part of our privilege as a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices is praise and thanksgiving. And I think it's appropriate that we can conclude this service by again reminding ourselves that all that we are is because of all that Christ is. And all the blessings that we have is because He has died on the cross, suffered in our place, bore our sins, bore the wrath of God that we deserve in hell, so that whoever comes to Him become living stones in Christ. So that all that Christ is, is what by His grace we reflect as His bride, His body, His church, His temple, His sheep and His priests who now get to offer to God praise and thanksgiving for what our Savior has done for us. So you get the opportunity to exercise your priesthood right now as you worship Him, as you praise Him, as you give Him thanks for saving you from your sins. And that's how we function as that holy priesthood. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we would encourage you and exhort you to let the elements pass you by. But think about your standing before God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we cannot save ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't earn our salvation. We're sinners. We've fallen short. But God in His great love has provided His Son as the one and only sacrifice. And if you will but repent and put your faith and trust in Christ alone to forgive you, He will wash you from all of your sins. He will give you the gift of everlasting life. But you must come to Him. You must call upon the name of the Lord. And He promised He will save you. Come to Christ and be saved. For those of us who have placed that faith in Christ, it's now our privilege to celebrate the Lord's death as a remembrance of what He accomplished to save us from our sins. 
This is the Lord's Supper and not the Supper of Northwest Bible Church. So we invite any and every believer in Jesus Christ to partake. We use unleavened bread as our Lord did when He inaugurated the Lord's Supper as the best fitting symbol for the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And we break the bread to remind us that His body on the cross was torn and broken. His bones weren't, but His flesh was ripped and torn asunder. Because that's what it... That's the price He had to pay to save you and me from our sins. He was tortured. He endured the agony and the pain, far more than just physical, but spiritual, the very wrath of God, because He loved us that much. And we should respond in thanksgiving for why would He save us? But He loved us that much that He endured the crushing of the Father to save you. Before we pass the bread, uh, let's give thanks to the Lord. Father, thank You. Father, You could have treated us justly in Your wrath, but You chose to treat us in grace through Your love by sending Your Son to die and pay the price that we could never fully pay, not even in hell. But that Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless Lamb of God, God incarnate came down and suffered in our place and bore our sins and the justice of God's penalty and absorbed the full wrath of God that whoever believes upon Him is forever forgiven and freed from their sin. Lord, thank You. Lord, we praise You. We lift up our offering of love and adoration and praise and thanksgiving for all that Christ has done for us to make us His chosen people. So we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.